This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 18, Cellular Glucose Transport. How glucose moves in and out of cells is important to understanding insulin resistance, energy use, and more. Let's learn about glucose transporters on cells and how they regulate glucose in our bodies. Great. Yeah, this is a topic that in hindsight, <clears throat> we, we should have maybe done sooner to this point because it's so fundamental in understanding what the body's doing with energy, or to be more precise, what cells are doing with energy, because of course that's actually the point of energy use. So we have a couple studies that people can refer to. I won't explicitly refer to them in the midst of this little classroom segment, <clears throat> but people can refer to them for more detail. Now, as by way of background, and, and this is in fact one of the very first lectures I teach my students in, in my undergraduate class. Uh, and it's to, and again, it's just to help people understand how glucose is moving because I start with in my class, a description of insulin resistance and diabetes, which are, you know, at least to a degree glucose problems. So <clears throat> first of all, every cell in the body can use glucose for fuel. And to my knowledge, every cell in the body will use glucose for fuel. There is uh, the one cell that we know has absolute 100% reliance on glucose is a cell called the red blood cells or the erythrocytes. Of course, those are very important cells. They keep the body going in any, for any number of ways in any number of processes they're involved with. 
But the red blood cell, because it lacks mitochondria, can only use glucose because glucose is the only fuel of all of the fuels, fatty acids, ketones, lactate, which is certainly a fuel. Let's talk about that at a future metabolic classroom, even in the context of the brain. But nevertheless, every other cell, they have mitochondria. They can use any fuel to a degree. Um, but the red blood cells must use glucose. So nevertheless, every cell can use glucose and the glucose moves into a cell through these, these transporters, they're called. They're called glucose transporters. And we, we abbreviate that to GLUT, G-L-U-T. So I will talk about the glutes. And those. And when I say that, I don't mean Rich is going to snicker when I say glute. <laughs> He's going to think I'm talking about his bum. Because everything, Rich, everything's about the bum for Rich. It's but a real no, bummer, I'm man. <clears throat> I'm talking about the glutes, the glucose transporters. And we're discovering more and more of these all the time. <clears throat> but just to establish a general view of, the, of all the cells of the body and, and the body at large, Anytime we have glucose moving in or out of a cell, specifically between the blood and the cell, it is using one of the 13 glucose transporters. And different cells will express these different glutes throughout the body. And I'll come back to that more in just a moment. But we have a different type of transporter that will be relevant that we'll talk about called the sodium glucose transporters. And these are often abbreviated to SGLT. And the SGLT glucose transporters exist in two unique locations. And this is not exchanging glucose between cell and blood, but rather what's called lumen and the body. So if you think of a lumen, a lumen is like a tube. And we have sort of two instances. And th this includes the guts, the intestinal tract. So moving glucose from the intestines, so the glucose that we've eaten, into the body. It will not use a glute. It will use one of these SGLTs, the sodium glucose transporter, and in the kidney. So at the kidney, we're constantly filtering contents from the blood into what would eventually become urine. And glucose does get filtered into that urine. But it has within the, the lumen or the tubules of the kidney, we, we are able to pull almost all of that glucose back into the blood from the kidneys. That also uses an SGLT. And I'll come back to those in a moment when I talk about drug targets um, that are used to try to control glucose levels in people with diabetes. Now, one thing about the glucose transporters, going back to the first type, and remember, the glutes are what moves glucose between cell and, or, or I'll start with between blood, moving from the blood into the cell. And in some instances, pretty much just one, from the cell into the blood. Now, there's one specific type of glucose transporter that's very unique, and that's called GLUT4. Because GLUT4 will only open, it will only open its doors to move glucose if insulin comes and tells it to. And so this is the type of glucose transporter that we have on the muscle and the fat cells. There are a couple other instances, including the brain. The brain has a little bit of these. But in these instances, these, these glucose doors won't open unless insulin comes and knocks and then the glucose doors will open. So those are that those are the ins so GLUT4 is an insulin dependent glucose transporter. And it's on the muscle and the adipose. So that means most of the glucose that moves from the blood into cells is going through GLUT4. Now other tissues like the brain or say the liver most especially um, let's talk the liver actually. The liver does not have GLUT4. 
And so it is a mistake to say that the liver needs insulin to stimulate its glucose uptake. Nope. It just has a, a glucose door that will open. The moment there's glucose that goes up in the blood, it'll just start coming into that, those, those doors into the liver. No need for insulin to tell it what to do at all. Now, even in those instances, however, someone might look at the liver and say, well, insulin has no role to play in glucose in the liver because insulin is not necessary for the liver to pull in glucose, unlike the muscle, which does need insulin or the fat cells. But that, that would be a mistake. While it is true that the liver does not need insulin to stimulate glucose uptake, it still needs insulin to tell it what to do with the glucose that comes in. So when the glucose is coming into the liver, insulin will be elevated because blood glucose has been up. It tells the liver, hey, you've just taken in some glucose. Now I need you to store it as glycogen. So if it weren't for insulin being up, <clears throat> the liver would, would not be able to store the glucose. And in contrast, it would start letting all of its glucose out by breaking down glycogen or building up new glucose processes called glycogenolysis or gluconeogenesis, respectively. So even in these non-GLUT4 cells, like the liver or, or, or red blood cells or the cells of the blood vessel wall or the gonads or any other cell, they don't need insulin for the glucose to come in. Their glucose transporters, their glutes are just always open and ready for the glucose to come in. Now, with regards to the SGLTs, I'd mentioned that we have these SGLTs in the intestines and in the, in, in the kidney tubule or kidney lumen. In both of those instances, we don't have insulin around. So none of these are insulin dependent. What's so interesting about these is that the glucose is able to move because it slips in through a sodium transporter. So on the walls of the intestines or the walls of the kidney tubules, um, we have lots of, uh, lots of sodium. So if we've, if we've been eating foods, sodium is almost in everything. And I don't just mean salt. I do just mean the mineral sodium. It is so abundant that when we're eating the glucose, if the glucose only is able to get into the body from the intestines because there's a sodium door that opens. So sodium is coming to the edge of the, of the guts or the edge of the kidney tubules. And sodium goes in through its door and then the glucose slips in behind it. it. And it's only in those locations, in the intestines or in the kidneys. Now, because so many people view type 2 diabetes as a glucose problem, they look at the elevated glucose. Of course, we've talked abundantly about how that's a problem because they ignore the insulin. But they will look at that glucose and they'll say, I'm going to give you an SGLT1 inhibitor. SGLT1 is the sodium glucose transporter that's in the guts. And so they take this pill and it inhibits the gut's ability to pull in the glucose. And so the glucose that they've eaten, it of course stays in their guts and goes through the body unabsorbed. Now that will in fact lower the glucose coming in. So if someone ate a, ate a bunch of bread and their glucose spiked up to 200, um, but they, ate, they take it with some time preceding, they've taken an SGLT1 inhibitor, the glucose will not go as high. Now, someone listening to us talk about this, they'll think, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to get some SGLT1 inhibitors. There's a catch because anytime you allow a lot of undigested or unabsorbed stuff to stay in the intestines, you get diarrhea. You'll have this incredible movement of water being pulled from the body, from the blood, which could lower your blood volume and lower your blood pressure and make you feel faint. 
and it dumps it, it moves all that water into the intestines to kind of match all that glucose that couldn't be absorbed. So while you may, in fact, by taking an SGLT1 inhibitor, lower your glucose, your glycemic response to a food, you will also never be very far from a toilet because you just can't run the risk of embarrassing yourself in public. On the other side, <clears throat> some people will be prescribed an SGLT2 inhibitor. That is the sodium glucose transporter that we find in the kidney. And so as blood is moving through the kidneys, we're filtering all kinds of molecules. Most of those molecules that are getting pulled from the blood into the kidney tubules will be reabsorbed through various transporters in various mechanisms. And the glucose will get reabsorbed, which is why we have almost no glucose in our urine through the SGLT2. And so a different class of drug is called the SGLT2 inhibitors. And in other words, if we're looking at this lumen of the kidney or the tubule, and here's the blood vessels coming in and the glucose is getting filtered. If we block those SGLT2 transporters, now the glucose that wanted to come back into the blood can't. And it's staying in the urine and getting or moving down in what will become urine and is then just excreted from the body in the urine. This will, in fact, lower blood glucose very well. However, there's a catch. And that is that you are loading the urinary tract with lots of glucose. And that is why people who are on SGLT2 inhibitors have such a significantly higher risk of urinary tract infections because we always have a little bacteria in our urinary tract. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's there. Bacteria, like cancer cells, thrive on glucose. That is literally the only fuel they can use. And when we are dumping all that glucose into our urinary tract, we are letting those bacteria just have a, a buffet. It's a bonanza. And so they start eating all that glucose and they start proliferating. And so you have a significantly greater risk of a UTI. I also mentioned cancer, where cancer cells also have what appears to be an almost total, if not total, reliance on glucose. And that could be why there's some evidence to suggest a greater risk of bladder cancer when people are taking SGLT2 inhibitors. Because if you have any dysplastic cells in the urinary tract, so any sort of precancerous growths, they get all that glucose and they can grow like gangbusters in, in, in the urinary tract. So once again, there's a consequence to trying to beat the body. And I, I, I do confess um, I rage against the use of those drugs, despite their efficacy. They are very good at lowering blood glucose. But rather than take a drug that tries to block the glucose from coming in by inhibiting SGLT1 inhibitors, or taking a drug that tries to block the kidneys from reabsorbing the glucose by taking SGLT2 inhibitors, why not just eat less glucose, right? That is just this uber rational view, just sort of waiting to be plucked from the tree of wisdom. Um, but it's just, it's too rational and no one can make money off it because you can't, you know, there's no drug to sell in that situation. But you can see the tragedy where people are willing to risk, really willing to risk horrific, socially damning diarrhea, or they're willing to risk urinary tract infections and perhaps increased risk of bladder cancer, all because they just want to eat the bagel. Oh, I just got to eat that bagel. So all that is worth it. I'm just going to eat. No, just put the bagel away. And at the same time, put those pills away. Not that I'm your doctor and I'm not telling you to change your prescriptions, but there's just this arguably very rational approach when you look at the SGLT2 now, um, or SGLT inhibitors. So I've kind of given a general overview of glucose transporters, and there are many different ones. Different cells have different types. Um, and the one I mentioned was GLUT4, 
which is the insulin dependent. It is the only one that must have insulin come to the cell first, knock on the door, so to speak, and then open the GLUT4 glucose transporters. Muscle is a GLUT4 tissue. However, muscle has a back door. There is this alternative mechanism of opening those GLUT4 transporters, and that is through muscle contraction. And it's a, it's a pretty clever thing, actually. So during exercise, insulin levels will drop. That's a good thing. That's one of the reasons I think exercise is so helpful among many. Insulin comes down, but if you're exercising, of course, the muscle needs a lot of energy, including glucose. The exercising muscle will very greedily use glucose as a fuel. But if insulin's down, now the muscle can't get their fuel, but the muscle has that back door. When you start to um, contract and relax a muscle, like you're exercising, the muscle is able to open those GLUT4 channels on their own just because of the contraction. Though that, that, that exercising is changing the biochemistry within the muscle in such a unique way that it is able to open those GLUT4 doors even though insulin isn't coming and knocking. The muscle is just too clever. It knows that during exercise, its demand for energy, including glucose, is so high that it can't have it be limited to what the insulin levels are. Because if insulin's high, then insulin's trying to tell the, the body to store energy everywhere, including in fat cells. And you don't want to be storing energy in fat cells when you're exercising. So if the insulin couldn't come down, then the body would never be able to mobilize its energy to, you know, to fuel the exercise. So when we think about GLUT4, which is the insulin-dependent glucose transporter, and it is the one that is abundant on muscle, remember that there's a contraction-induced mechanism. And this is one of the reasons why exercise is so good for people that are insulin-resistant or outright type 2 diabetic, because you can, you can open the back door, so to speak, and lower the blood glucose without the need of insulin. So even if you're insulin-resistant and insulin isn't pulling in the glucose very well into your muscle, thank heavens, there's another way to do that um, and, and not only fuel the muscle for the exercise, but also lower the glucose. And it's totally independent of exercise. Now, in fact, let me just come back to the brain um, as, a, as a final thought, just because we started out this segment by me mentioning my study. The brain does have GLUT4 transporters. It also has other transporters, but the fact that the brain does have some GLUT4 means that at least some of the glucose transport is insulin dependent because the brain can't contract. It doesn't have that back door like the muscle does. Those GLUT4 transporters in the brain are totally dependent on insulin. And so if they become insulin resistant, then you have compromised glucose uptake. And maybe I'll elaborate more on that next week as well. So there's the overview. That is how we move glucose in and out of cells and in and out of the body. Two different sets of uh, transporters in those two different areas. That is awesome. Great. I need a little time to digest that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so, ben, hey, Ben, on metformin, what, what kind of uh, inhibitor is that, metformin? Ah, uh, yeah, metformin is totally unrelated to, to glucose transporters. Oh. It, it, to a degree, metformin is a fascinating drug, um, and there's literally, literally more studies coming out all the time understanding the mechanisms, including a review paper just this week by a very good insulin resistance lab. But at least part of the benefits of metformin are thought to be because metformin, this sounds crazy, but it's a mild mitochondrial poison. It actually prevents the mitochondria from working as well. And in the process, um, 
the, the mitochondria are producing less ATP, which is this sort of fundamental molecule that, um, that allows the cell to do work, whatever the cell may be, including a muscle contracting, for example, but any cell doing whatever it wants to do, it needs ATP. But as the mitochondria aren't allowing the mitochondria to produce as much ATP, that activates an enzyme called AMPK, and AMPK will stimulate glucose uptake and help fat burning and help insulin sensitivity. So, but it's interesting though, because the trade-off is where you may be very mildly altering the ability of, of your mitochondria to work. That could be why people that take metformin um, mitigate some of the benefits of exercising. You know, it's, it's crazy to say this, but there is human evidence to support this. If people that exercise have a certain kind of cardiorespiratory adaptation and they get more fit, um, when they take metformin, it doesn't happen as much. The metformin is actually blocking their ability to adapt to the aerobic exercise. So I know for a time, maybe even still, there are people who take metformin to kind of biohack. They think they're being very clever. Oh, I'm taking metformin and it's making me more insulin sensitive. No, no. I mean, well, maybe possibly to a degree, but it's also making your exercise worse. And, and you know, who, you know, who knows what else it's doing to the mitochondria that you're putting such a high demand on while you're exercising. So metformin, like any drug, should not be used to think you're clever than human physiology in biohacking. Yeah. Hmm. So I have two questions. The first one isn't really a question, but more of a thought. It's interesting. There's so many people who use the idea that the brain needs glucose. Therefore, you should never eat a low carb, high fat protocol because you got to feed fuel the brain. And yet yeah. what you're saying is that when you fuel your body with glucose, if you become insulin resistant in the meantime, your brain can't actually get glucose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. have to stop like eating glucose so your brain yep. can get glucose. Yeah, that's right. So I used that. I guys, I, I wish I could remember. I wish I were eloquent and, and Renaissance man enough to remember where the quote is. But it's that line, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. You guys know that expression? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the brain where it is surrounded by the sea of glucose, but it can't use it. You know, yeah. it's just tempted. It's just out of arm's reach. Fascinating. So the other question I had was, um, if GLUT4 is the only one of the glucose transporters that involves insulin, mm -hmm. you got to backtrack a little bit and explain why is insulin? I mean, when we talk about glucose, we always say glucose isn't really the issue. It's insulin. Mm -hmm. But insulin's only involved in one of the many glucose transporters. Can mm -hmm. you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. Like where's yeah, insulin so in the rest of the glucose transporting yep, process? Yep, yep. So every other cell... So someone might say, well, then how on earth is insulin so essential to my glucose coming up and then it going down? Why does it stay so high? And that's because the muscle consumes 80% of all glucose. Okay. So when someone has eaten that bread, then the glucose has climbed. 80% of what is causing it to come down is because of the muscle. Okay. That um, and, and that is why. And so if you take away that aspect of it, any other glucose going into any other cell, it's just a, it's just a trickle. Um, including the, the fat tissue, because by mass, depending on the person, fat tissue may be, you know, almost right up there behind muscle. And so when you've lost those two tissues, muscle and fat, um, you are really are, especially the muscle, but even the fat, you've really lost access to the greatest glucose sink that you could be dumping the glucose into from the blood. And then, and then Carly, that, that the view, I would just remind the, the audience, the view that 
disease is about um, insulin, not glucose. That is just because while glucose, chronically elevated glucose or hyperglycemia does have consequences to blood vessels and, and neurons, but that's kind of where that connection ends. And so when you want to try to explain how glucose is, say, connected to infertility, well, it doesn't, it falls apart. Or how glucose is connected to hypertension, it falls apart. Um, that's where the insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia comes in. Now, so, so Ben, so Ben, the, the, the insulin still is involved in every cellular uh, mechanism, right? Yep. Okay. yep, yep. So even the cells where insulin isn't stimulating the uptake of the glucose, which is the vast majority of cells in the body, insulin is still telling that cell what to do with the energy, including the glucose. So even a red blood cell that does not need insulin to, for glucose uptake, the red blood cell will just gobble in any glucose that's there. It still needs insulin to bind to its receptors or to knock on its doors to say, hey, I see that you just took in some glucose. Now I'm here to tell you what to do with it. So if it weren't for insulin, the cell wouldn't have, it, 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 this sounds silly to say, but it wouldn't know what to do with the glucose. Do I store it? Do I burn it? Do I convert it to lactate? I mean, I don't know what to do. And someone tell me what to do. Insulin tells it what to do. It is it's the, the metabolic foreman. It's the boss. <laughs> it's the Carly of the conversation. Carly, that's right. <laughs> oh, great. So I have one other question. Even though um, I hear Rich all the time, all the time I see Rich and he's always like muttering under his breath, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, <laughs> I'm, the boss, I'm, the boss. <laughs> I'm the boss, I'm the boss. So if, um, now I lost my train of thought, that's bad. <laughs> okay, so if, we we talk about this all the time, how there's kind of this paradigm, there's kind of this idea that some people who do very low carb for a very long period of time, they have this elevated blood glucose, even though their insulin is very under control. Could this, the whole glute four and only being able to have one back door, which is exercise, mm -hmm. could that explain any of this? Oh, I think it could. I think it could explain higher fasting glucose levels. It might be that there is this chronic adaptation where the body just starts reducing its glute expression, thinking, I'm not really using this, so why am I making these anymore? The body abhors waste in that sense. I also do think that there's something one step further back with regards to the production of the glucose, which we've elaborated on before, namely uh, perhaps elevations in glucagon in some people, where for some reason, some people have higher levels of glucagon in response to fasting or low carb. Uh, and and we have a study just about to start uh, that will help elaborate some light on, or shed some light on that. So yeah, I would say in those instances, it could be a result of both too much glucose on the front end where the liver is pumping out too much and perhaps on the back end where you have tissues, perhaps due to reductions in glute expression that are just more reluctant to take in the glucose. Not reluctant, they've just adapted to kind of living life without it. And that, I mean, because that's why some people, after they eat a big carb-loaded meal, having not eaten carbs for a while, they will, they will see their glucose come down. Pretty, that's pretty typical, which is, you know, why people think carbs every once in a while is probably a good thing. I would guess that's mm -hmm. where that idea yeah, comes yeah. from. In fact, I'll shed one more insight onto that. This is, in fact, the study we're doing right now with a collaborator who's a beta cell expert. Um, what I think is part of the problem where people who've adapted to a low carb diet and now they find, boy, my blood glucose used to, when I would eat this cereal, my glucose would only go to 130. Now it's going to 160 and 170. What's, you know, what's up with that? I think a part of that is 
at the level of insulin production, where in a normal beta cell or a normal human, there's two phases to insulin. There's a first phase and then a second phase. That first phase is all, which is the immediate load. The, the, the glucose hits the blood. The pancreas says, I've got some insulin already made. And, it, and then it just lets it out. It's, it's basically insulin packaged up in these little um, granules that the beta cell just has ready. It's on hand. It dumps it in. That's the first phase. Then the second phase is when the beta cell is thinking, all right, that wasn't enough. I need to make some more now. And so then it kind of mobilizes all the enzymatic machinery to make new insulin. I predict, and we'll have an answer soon, that the, the, the beta cell um, in, in adaptation to a low-carbohydrate environment has stopped producing all of that on-hand insulin, in, in, like in those granules, the insulin that is ready to go. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, that's wasteful. Why is insulin producing, why is the beta cell producing all this insulin when it all just, when it only just has to break it down later uh, because it didn't end up getting released? That's a very wasteful process. And so I predict that the glucose stimulation of insulin secretion from the beta cell is down um, when someone's long-term or chronically adapted to a low-carb diet. That is, of course, not an irreversible phenomenon. You can very easily stimulate the beta cell to get all that insulin ready to go next time, like through the, what you just said, maybe a cyclical ketogenic diet. And I'm not endorsing it one way or the other, but that's probably the physiological um, phenomenon. I, I predict that's what's happening. Cool. Great discussion. Carly, Rich, any other questions for, for Ben on this topic? We have some, some questions that have come in that, uh, that I'd like to ask. Any, 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 anything else from you two? Okay. A couple things, Ben. Some of our viewers have, uh, have chimed in. From Kenneth, uh, what fuel is muscle using when glucose and insulin are very low? Yeah, um, then the muscle will very, very happily use fatty acids or, um, or ketones. Fatty acids would be the most of that. So we always talk about ketones as a fuel, and it is, but it, it, is, it pales in comparison to the energy that the fatty acids are going to be providing. So if you have a context of a low-carb or fasting situation, the muscle is very happily using fatty acids for fuel and, of course, ketones. I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but we always talk about the ketones. I think sometimes we give the ketone a little too much weight when it comes to this kind of topic. So fatty acids would very happily be the primary fuel for the muscle. The muscle would gladly use it. You say happily, but that adaptation seems to be kind of the longest for people. The ability to, to lift as heavy and to run as long or as, as energetic. So is there a lag there? Can you explain that oh, a little bit? Oh, yeah, the, the, absolutely. As people yeah. start. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, the problem is where people find that they have to use fatty acids at ever higher intensities. So there's typically this inverse relationship at the muscle with regards to intensity and fat burning. And, and traditionally, not traditionally, typically, typically, as intense, when intensity is low, like we're all just sort of lounging and talking, um, the muscle is probably getting most of its energy right now from fatty acids. But then as intensity would start to go up, which for Rich is going to be walking across the room, then, then fats, <laughs> fats can't do that. And so low intensity, higher fat burning, but lower overall rate of energy expended. But then as intensity is going up and overall energy expended is going up, fatty acids start to provide a, 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 an increasingly smaller 
um, portion of that fuel. And then with adaptation, you're able to push up that intensity and keep the fatty acids at a higher level of, of providing that fuel. So that's the adaptation. And it is almost totally a result of making more mitochondria and making more of the enzymes involved in, you know, in fat burning or fat, uh, fat breakdown. So keep going. If you think exercise yeah. is harder yeah. than it should be or was in the past. Yep. Is that ad yeah. adaptation would be uh, different for every, every single person or are there kind of some general thoughts as far as timeline for that kind of ad adaptation? You know, I, I don't know. I wish I could cite a specific study. I'm unaware of any lines of evidence that would allow me to answer that. Uh, but it would certainly be different depending on muscle mass and inherent differences in muscle fiber type. Different muscle fiber types, um, one or 2A or, two, or 2B, um, absolutely will, will give someone an advantage in one way over the other. And I would say most people you know, after about six or eight weeks, feel like they can work out as hard. It does take a while. But like I've heard um, elite athletes who are pushing their body to the ultimate limit say this adaptation feels like it takes a year. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Martha, uh, <laughs> Martha asks, um, and I think we touched on this a few minutes ago. Uh, could you also discuss how statin drugs impact glucose levels? Mm. Yeah, so there are, I, I don't know of the molecular mechanisms for this. And so I would have to cite this as correlational, which, which is weak evidence. Um, but there is studies in adults that find in women, women who take statin drugs have an almost almost doubling of their risk of developing type two diabetes. Uh, I, if I were to speculate, I don't know that this phenomenon has been shown in men. And, and so I, I can't answer why the, you know, disparity between the sexes here. Um, it could be that when you, there is also evidence to find that statins um, hurt the mitochondria where and that may be a result of the fact that when you're taking a statin, you are decimating your cholesterol production. And one of the many, 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 many things cholesterol turns into is ubiquinone. And ubiquinone is an essential, I mean, absolutely pivotal, fundamental aspect of the electron transport system, which is really the, the, the fundamental purpose of the mitochondria. It is, it, that is where we are actually getting the, the production of the ATP, which is why the mitochondria are there for the most part. Um, so when you don't have enough cholesterol, you may not have enough ubiquinone. And now you don't have, you have mitochondria that have, have one of the pieces of the machinery. It's like we've gone to the machine and just removed one of the cogs. And now we just can't, the machine can't work. The others are just waiting there. All the other pieces are just sitting there uselessly. So uh, and that is often why when people are prescribed a uh, statin drug, they're also prescribed ubiquinone or ubiquinol or some, or, or CoQ10. That's another name for it. That's given to them because we know, Hey, I'm going to give you this drug and it's going to potentially damage your mitochondria. So here's something to help offset that, that negative consequence. Yeah. Just to add, add another drug. <laughs> fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, but sorry, but to the point, to the person's question, um, Part of the, when you damage mitochondria and you damage the oxidative capacity of cells, um, you can't burn fat as well. 
and and that uh, that is a, a general phenomenon with insulin resistance. You've got to be able to burn fat. If you can't burn fat well, and and I would say a statin makes it harder, then you are running the risk. You're increasing your risk of of insulin resistance. Great. Hope that helps, Martha. Uh, from EMS, I've heard that people with Alzheimer's can't utilize glucose well. Uh, is that also related to other neuro conditions such as epilepsy? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I think epilepsy and migraines both have been, and, and Alzheimer's disease, have been shown uh, to be, to some degree, a phenomenon of glucose hypometabolism. And so this is something we can measure in people and we have, um, and it's measured enough that we have normal ranges where you can infuse glucose into a person, a particular type, what's called a radio labeled glucose. And then you can do a PET scan on the individual and you can see how much glucose is going into the brain and how much it's being metabolized. Uh, I would encourage anyone to look up the work of a man named Stephen Cunane. Um, I've mentioned him already a couple times. In fact, he's coming to give, well, not coming. He's remotely coming to BYU to give a talk in a week next Wednesday um, about this topic. So yes, in, in each of those instances, you can detect brain glucose hypometabolism. Um, in other words, the brain isn't using as much glucose as it, as it would normally be using. And that could be why in each of those three pathologies that are seemingly totally distinct and unrelated to each other, epilepsy, migraines, Alzheimer's, there's evidence in all three of them to show that when ketones are up in the system, the disease gets better. Not that it's gone entirely, although sometimes it is. In the case of epilepsy and migraines, you could have individuals who never have another problem with that disorder. Uh, to me, it is all a strong, strong um, defense, <clears throat> if not outright promotion of the idea that the brain is desperate for ketones. Is that is there any evidence on anxiety and depression along that? No, 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 not that I know of. No, in fact, I've tried to find. Someone had asked me that a few months back, and I didn't find evidence um, on that. Okay. Uh, from Nancy, does caffeine have an effect on blood glucose? Yeah, it would be uh, modest. I think that the levels a human would have to take of caffeine would have to be quite considerable, but. Nowadays, people probably get there. Caffeine does increase um, epinephrine and cortisol, the two stress hormones. And one of their mechanisms of action is to break down glycogen in the liver to increase blood glucose. So if someone does notice that caffeine is doing that to them, and some people are more sensitive to that than others, then it's going to be because of what those, it's going to be because of what's happening at the liver in the breakdown of glycogen. But that absolutely can happen. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. How, how does caffeine affect fat metabolism? Yeah, yeah. Well, overall, it's, it's good. So caffeine does promote lipolysis, which is on the front end of it. It, it stimulates the fat cell to start breaking down its stored triglycerides. Um, so it helps with lipolysis and it helps with the, the burning, the beta oxidation of it. Now, that is a sentiment that someone would hear and think, oh, I can really leverage that. You know, I'm going to take more caffeine it is such a modest effect overall that if someone's drinking caffeine and they're spiking their insulin, insulin always wins. And so there's not going to be, that effect will not be happening. And, uh, and, and even still the amount of the caffeine, it's such an overall modest effect, but it absolutely happens. 
Uh, from Nick, is muscle glycogen decreased in a low, on a low-carb diet? Yeah, it's not actually. That's one of the interesting things. The muscle, I like to say the muscle is such a greedy tissue that it doesn't care what the rest of the body's doing. It's going to get its own. And so that's why there is, in fact, evidence to show uh, a couple studies, <clears throat> at least, maybe more now, that muscle glycogen is totally normal. And it goes down following exercise and goes right back up totally normal, um, even though the person's adhering to a low-carb diet. Even in recovery with adherence with a low-carb diet, the muscle still recovers glycogen at, I think, the same rate as the normal high-carb diet. And that's just reflective of the fact that the muscle is a greedy little bugger, and it's just going to pull in whatever glucose it needs to pull in to get back to normal. You just wouldn't use your glycogen as readily. That would be the big difference. You're not going to tap into that glycogen as readily if you're on a low-carb diet. Thank you for listening to The Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at InsulinIQ.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T, H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.